Hello, and welcome back to Unbounded Conversations. Uh, I'm joined here as always by Dave, and today we have a fantastic guest. Uh, we have Ryan X. Charles of Money Button. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me, uh, Jackson and Dave. Re great to, uh, to talk with you guys. So we were just talking about this with Ryan, as you guys know by now. The, uh, the purpose of this video series is to explore BSV and sort of niche subjects in order to uh, take sort of a broad view at the uh, larger context of what's possible from a business standpoint using Bitcoin um, to create businesses that have never been possible before Bitcoin or just to use Bitcoin to give yourself a competitive advantage uh, over existing businesses. And so, Ryan, you are in the middle of a number of really sort of foundational technologies, I would say, uh, related to Bitcoin. And we wanted to have you sort of give us a window into what are these technologies and then dive right into uh, how can they be used, how can they be leveraged by businesses. Uh, so maybe the best way to start is if you want to give us the sort of quick overview of who you are, your background, and what you are, what you guys are working on at Money Button. Sure. So, uh, so my, my background is I'm, I'm actually, so I've always been a very technical person who is a programmer since a young age. I later became a physicist. I was getting a PhD in physics and I, I left my PhD in physics to go full-time Bitcoin in 2013. So what I've been doing since then is I worked in a number of different companies. I worked at BitPay, uh, which is a Bitcoin payment processor. I worked at Reddit. I was the cryptocurrency engineer of Reddit on a ill-fated uh, cryptocurrency project there. Uh, and I also was an engineer at BitGo, which is a basically a Bitcoin security firm. After I left BitGo, I went and started what would become Money Button uh, in 2015. It took actually a long time to, so we started building a decentralized social network. And it, it took a long time to like actually focus in on what I now think is the right idea, which is Money Button. That, it actually took effectively about... Uh, about three years to actually even have the idea for and then actually create Money Button. So what Money Button is, is uh, it is uh, almost literally what it sounds like. The, the role model is actually the Facebook like button. We wanted to make something just like the Facebook like button for people who are familiar. You can easily copy and paste the Facebook like button onto a web page. We wanted to make a Money Button that's just as easy to use. It should be something where the developers can just copy and paste it onto a website to start either accepting payments or doing something else with payments. And it should be very easy for the consumer to just press the button to make a payment, just like they would press the Facebook like button. So uh, we launched Money Button uh, last year. I think it's been about 13 months or something like that since we launched. And uh, a, a bit of a more technical view on what this is, is it's actually an embeddable Bitcoin wallet or Bitcoin SV wallet. So what we're doing is we're just making it as easy as possible for someone to start adding Bitcoin payments into their application. So although we, so we, we currently have like many different features, like for instance, you can send to multiple different people at the same time. Uh, we don't support every Bitcoin feature right now, but the vision for Money Button is to support every feature of Bitcoin so that it's just the easiest way to, to create an application that does stuff with Bitcoin. Sure. Yeah. So... I mean, it's, it's very interesting that you came from a physics background and halted that to pursue Bitcoin. Was Bitcoin a tool that was interesting to you because you could do something specific with it? Or was it just an interesting technology that you explored and found interesting solutions to problems that you weren't aware of prior to that? 
Good question. I mean, I, I, I guess there is a, so I'm, I'm, I'm someone who is just drawn to Bitcoin in many different ways. So I found it fascinating and I was kind of, I just became obsessed with it when I discovered it. It seemed to be so useful for so many things that it, it's hard to pinpoint one thing in particular. But I will say that when I, when I first discovered Bitcoin, the idea that you could have a form of internet money that wasn't controlled by anyone struck me as something like that is the future. And so my original instinct about it was, first of all, I didn't really believe it. And so I needed to research it. So I spent about three weeks obsessively researching it. The more I researched it, the more convinced I became that it was real. Um, but it seemed like, like it, basically a business opportunity. So I looked at it from the perspective of an entrepreneur, which is a bit unusual for me because I wasn't an entrepreneur at the time. I was a physicist. Uh, but it just struck me as this... Uh, surely to be a new industry. And so it made career sense for me to be involved. So the part of it that struck me as like, if I had to pick one application that struck me as the most interesting and important, it's money. It's the idea that you can have money for the world um, that is not controlled by a single organization, that it's not, you know, the Federal Reserve or the, uh, you know, the, the Central Bank of Europe, uh, whatever that institution is called. Um, you know, it, it's a uh, decentralized in that sense, um, that it's not controlled by anyone. So that was the most compelling one. Of course, uh, there are many, many other applications of Bitcoin. And, and actually, the, the applications that we're focused on with Money Button uh, involve uh, a combination of things like money and data. So people are actually now using uh, the Bitcoin SV blockchain to store data, uh, which was not something I even thought about originally. But in any case, uh, uh, the idea of creating uh, uh, decentralized world money, and I'll be careful about how I use this expression. When I say decentralized, in this case, I'm, I'm specifically meaning not controlled by one entity. Uh, it's decentralized in that sense. That's the most compelling uh, application to me. Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, you sort of went straight down the entrepreneurial route, even though that wasn't your background, because you just saw such an immense opportunity. Uh, that must have been, or probably continues to be, a big challenge. Uh, what would you say to people who maybe are similar to you in that, you know, they're really sort of obsessed with Bitcoin, they see a world of possibility, but they maybe don't have uh, entrepreneurial experience uh, that they can draw on, um, but they want to make an impact and they want to build? Well, you know, you can take the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, you know, sort of to different places. Like, you, you don't have to start a business. So, I mean, you know, you, you should figure out, you know, for, to any new person who's interested in this, I can't tell them what's, what's best for themselves. I mean, they need to figure out a path that makes sense for themselves. So that could mean, it could mean starting a company. It might mean joining another company or it might be in, involved in some other respect. I would say something about Bitcoin that I think uh, distinguishes us from, from some other uh, sort of, let's, let's say, areas of interest that people might have is that it's, it's very, uh, uh, let's say, capitalist. I mean, a lot of this revolves around uh, either starting or being a part of a business that solves a problem and sustains itself by earning more money than it spends, right? It's, it's this idea of, you know, uh, using money uh, to, to, to solve problems uh, and to, uh, to create value for people where they actually buy something from you, okay? So this is different than, you know, say something you know, like where I come from physics. Well, the, the physics world doesn't really think about things that way at all. I mean, they're, they're scientists and they're academics and 
they don't really think about money very often. Money is a barrier to, to you know, the, the stuff that they're interested in. Um, so I think if you adopt that mentality, um, I think that will be helpful. Um, but uh, it, it's hard to give generic advice to, to anyone. I mean, like, you know, you, what, what you should do is you should, here, here, I'll give you, here's my answer to that question kind of in general. I do have generic advice for everyone, which is what you should do is figure out what's best for you and then spend all of your time doing that. That's what you should do. It's interesting that you put it like that because I remember maybe about a year ago, I was at a conference at MIT, which is a very sort of, I guess, more physics oriented place, um, maybe than a capitalism oriented place. And they have a digital currency initiative, which is very BTC oriented. Um, and I spoke to one of the sort of directors of that program about, you know, how do you feel about the fact that, well, they have, they have a very explicitly, even though I would say they're BTC oriented, they have no investments. Um, and, and I asked her like, what would you say about the idea of having skin in the game in terms of you, you're trying to add to this you know, currency add to this technology, yet you have no um, skin in the game. You don't bear any of the impact of like what you're trying to put out in the world. Uh, and she was very dismissive, dismissive of that attitude, had the sort of perspective that that would be most likely a corrupting influence and that, you know, just providing technology from a very sort of pure hearted standpoint was the superior path. Uh, was there anything in your background that maybe you know, coming from sort of a more academic world and then going down the entrepreneurial path rather than like trying to join some sort of like research initiative. Uh, was there anything in your background that maybe made that a clear decision? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of funny that because uh, universities, uh, universities are pretty uh, liberal and I hate to get into politics, but it's like it's, it's worth recognizing like they, they often I'm not surprised to hear that they might misunderstand capitalism <laughs> and that basically they pick the wrong side at a university because they don't quite understand the technology that they're dealing with. And of course, people at MIT would be offended if I said this to them, but I, I'll be totally honest and like, I'm, I'd be happy to have a conversation with anybody at MIT and say the same things that I say to everyone, which is I, I don't think BTC makes any sense. I mean, I don't think it makes economic sense. You can't build businesses on it. They miss something really important in the BTC world, not only, not only do they not help businesses, they actually acted very contrary to business. So my company, as well as every other company I worked for uh, that's, that's, that's immersed in space, BitPay and BitGo, we were all listed on the, uh, the businesses that were denounced by Bitcoin.org during the, uh, the block size drama of 2017. They denounced like more than half of all of the businesses because they thought that we were evil. Uh, for like being a business basically we can go into the details if people really want to know but um it was just absurdity i mean they, they're they're very they're actually very anti-business and, and very anti-capitalism very anti uh well anti-capitalism i think is a good way of summarizing it so in any case um it is just kind of funny that what the, the the version of this technology that ended up being adopted by universities is the one that uh conveys a lack of understanding in my opinion uh, of economics and of capitalism um and of entrepreneurship um, with respect to my background, now I'm, I have a, a bit of an unusual background. It is true that when I was a physicist, I decided to quit physics and go into Bitcoin and become an entrepreneur. But I wasn't completely ignorant of entrepreneurship before that happened. So I'm someone that when I was younger in high school, I did a lot of freelance uh, web development for people. 
which is very different than operating a, 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 like a startup company. But I was in the sort of world of being a sort of independent business person and had to go out and meet people and, and do business with them. I would make them a website and stuff like that. And, and so that, that did sort of color how I see things. And I could tell in the physics world that a lot of people had, had no experience like that at all, that their only experience was academic. And so those people would be much more in the dark trying to do something you know, in the, as an entrepreneur because they would have no experience whatsoever. Um, so I did have some experience with it. I was involved in, in, in web development around, I think it was something like 2000 or 2005 or thereabouts when I did that type of thing. And, and have also followed technology my whole life. So I've also just been very interested in, in the internet and have read books about startup companies and read many, many articles and things like this. So although I wasn't, an entrepreneur, I was immersed in that world and uh, was very open to whatever made the most sense for me. And if that meant leaving academia, I also recognized the sunk cost because I quit my PhD I'm like after six years, which is a very long time to decide to just leave. Uh, but uh, I decided, well, it's a sunk cost. And, uh, you know, so I think about things in a, in a rational way like that. And I'm like, well, I mean, if I'm going to switch my career, guess what? I don't actually need a PhD in physics. It actually makes no difference whatsoever. And in some ways, actually being able to tell the story is actually a little bit more interesting than actually getting a PhD. So uh, in any case, that's kind of how I saw it in, in right now. Well, it's a strong signal to send to have left uh, a PhD program to pursue something. It shows a certain level of dedication. Yep. You know, it's interesting, uh, and this is, a, this is going to be a good segue. Uh, it's interesting that MIT would be hosting this digital currency initiative and they're sort of treating it like they're contributing to open source software. But that's not really what Bitcoin is. I think when you confuse the protocol and the sort of system of rules with software, you run into a lot of tricky things. Like I just sort of was berated in a group uh, that I left fairly shortly after about uh, working for a fund investing in BSV when I don't run a BSV node. Uh, you know, how can you claim to help people invest if you don't run the software. And I, that run the software thing is a, sort of an interesting statement and I think a window into that mindset. But we do have these things called uh, BIPs and among the BIPs are, or is BIP2, BIP270 mm -hmm. and you're sort of associated with BIP270. So why don't you maybe walk us through what is a BIP um, and how does that relate to sort of iterating on either the software or the rule set of Bitcoin. Okay, so first of all, uh, so what is a BIP? Uh, BIP? BIP stands for Bitcoin Improvement Proposal. And the BIP process was something that was started a very long time ago, probably going back to maybe about 2011, maybe even earlier than that, where people realized they needed to build something and it needed to be something consistent with what other people were doing. So we needed some standards. And so they modeled this BIP process after Python, because if I remember correctly, Python has something called PIP, P-I-P, or Python Improvement Proposal. And so they just kind of copied the idea, but for Bitcoin. And so the idea was a way for people to just write up a standard and get it, you know, in some sense, sort of agreed to with the community. Uh, so that started quite early on, and some of the original standards were things like uh, how, to, uh, how to share a multi-sig transaction with other people so that they could sign it and stuff like this. Um, as well as things like what is the what is a uh, Bitcoin URI? So how do you structure like a link on a web page that's supposed to open your wallet? What is that supposed to look like? 
So most of these things had nothing to do with the underlying Bitcoin protocol itself. They were like higher level protocols. Um, what would then happen basically in a nutshell, and I don't know how much you want to get into this stuff, but, uh, but there is escalating drama starting. Um, I think it's one starting point you could pick is 2013 when Greg Maxwell stated on the Bitcoin talk forum that he believed Bitcoin would not function economically with large blocks and that it required a sharply constrained block size to actually make the economics work. And that kind of initiated a escalating and multi-year long uh, dramatic debate taking place predominantly on the internet, but also at conferences and things like this between the people that wanted to restrict the maximum block size and the people that didn't. And for people that are new to this, it, it all sounds very crazy and unusual, but it was very, very extreme living through this because I basically picked a side early on because one side made way more sense. And the more I worked on it and stuff like this, it, it just became crystal clear what was going on that, uh, you know, basically the only way I could figure out how to make everything fit together and work was with was big blocks, not small blocks. So in any case, um, a number of standards were developed uh, in these BIPs over time and uh, it, it ended up becoming something where uh, basically it was fully controlled by the Bitcoin core people, which are the people that, that favor small blocks. So when Bitcoin SV was created, uh, early on what I did was as soon as I started talking with people and getting involved in what would become future standards on top of Bitcoin SV, um, the first thing I thought to do was to, to fork the BIP repo and start creating BIPs there. So what I did was I went back to August 1st, 2017, which was the day that Bitcoin Cash was launched. I picked the, the most recent commit on the BIP repo before that, which was basically before people parted ways and started from that and forked that to the money button uh, GitHub page and started a new uh, BIP location. And what would then, so actually that actually, I actually did that, I think it was probably February of this year, Right before that, we had had a uh, in-chain uh, got most of the wallet companies together and we had uh, what we called a wallet workshop. And in the wallet workshop was actually where uh, we decided to create something called BIP270. Um, I actually can't remember whether I forked the repo before or after that, but it, it doesn't really matter. There's one or two other BIPs on there that we created, but what, what's now somewhat, uh, you know, sort of a, a point of discussion in the Bitcoin SV community is BIP270. So let me just explain what this is and where this came from. So um, one popular BIP early on in the Bitcoin world, uh, going back to, I believe it was 2013, is something called BIP70 that was written by Mike Hearn and Gavin Andresen. So Gavin Andresen was uh, uh, you know, someone who, so Satoshi gave the keys to the repo to Gavin. Gavin was the uh, sort of a, uh, the, the person who inherited access to all of the stuff after Satoshi left in 2010. Mike Hearn was another uh, developer who's been involved going back to 2009 originally. So he was someone who was deeply involved in, in programming all sorts of stuff, including Bitcoin J, this uh, alternate implementation of, of Bitcoin in Java. So uh, uh, they knew, they, they understood Bitcoin a lot better than a lot of other people. And they realized that, um, uh, we need to make things that are like, we need to make user friendly and scalable wallets. So they created a standard called BIP70. It's also called payment protocol, which doesn't touch the underlying Bitcoin protocol at all. All it is, is a user friendly way to send a payment to a service provider 
to know authentically that the correct recipient is actually receiving the money because it's signed with SSL certificates. It comes with data structures for how to actually structure a payment request, telling you how much money you pay for something, as well as all the protocols for like actually sending the payment, which includes sending the transaction itself directly to the recipient. Uh, and, and that's it. So it's, it's called payment protocol because it's a, it's a doesn't touch Bitcoin itself. It is a communication and like data structure protocol for how do I actually give a payment to someone authentically and know that, that the correct person is receiving it. So that was called BIP70. And we need something like BIP70 to create user-friendly scalable wallets. We need to get rid of this idea of copying and pasting a Bitcoin address from one wallet to another. If a user ever sees a Bitcoin address, this is a usability disaster. I mean, you should never see a whatever it is, 100 character long base 58 encoded string and it looks like a random gibberish. Um, it's error prone. You have no idea if it's the correct person actually receiving the money. It just looks bad. It's also just, it's not user friendly to ever have to copy and paste things. I think even QR codes are, are definitely not the, the best user friendly experience we could have. Furthermore, from a scalability perspective, we really need to move to a different model where the sender gives the transaction to the recipient so that the recipient doesn't have to scan the blockchain to look for their payment. Um, the, the idea that Dave or Jackson, if either of you guys, if I were to give you a payment, let's say Dave, I want to give you a payment. The idea that instead of just giving you the payment, I give it to these other people over here, the miners. And then in order for you to actually receive the payment, you have to look at every single transaction that the miners have to find my payment to you in there, like finding a needle in a haystack is silliness. It makes way more sense if I give you the transaction directly and then you give it to the miners because then you have the payment and all you have to do is basically ask the miners whether it's valid or not without having to look at the entire world's transaction. So it's, it's far more scalable. So we needed something like BIP70. And so what we did was we basically just got together and we all agreed about that, but we also agreed that BIP70 had some drawbacks that we wanted to fix. We wanted to get rid of the SSL certificates, which are really irritating to deal with, and we can do authentication a different layer. And we wanted to get rid of protobufs because protobufs are also kind of irritating to deal with. And we wanted to switch to JSON, which every single wallet already has support for and requires less file size in a browser and is just easier and more familiar to every developer. So we just made those minimal changes and that would become BIP270. We, the reason why we called it BIP270 was basically because it was similar to BIP70, but was a number that wasn't taken by something else. Um, so that's why it was called BIP270. And there's a few related standards to all that stuff. So in a nutshell, what BIP270 is all about is moving to a new paradigm for wallet-to-wallet -wallet transactions where you give the transaction directly to the recipient. That's the fundamental piece of it. And I want to add one other point in conclusion to this, which is what we're actually implementing in practice right now with some of the wallets is actually a subset of BIP270. We're starting with only the peer-to-peer -peer transaction stuff. And we're actually going to worry about implementing the rest of it later, basically because it became clear that there's greater agreement if we do it this way. If we just implement the peer-to-peer -peer transaction part by itself first, then we can worry about how to display a payment request and how to display invoices and how to structure all that other data, which is just extra complexity we don't want to deal with at this time. Um, so that's it. That's, that's what it is and where it comes from. Yeah, and to put it in another way, just for people who maybe are hearing about this for the first time, uh, you could think about maybe something simple like you went to, uh, you got your haircut, and now you need to pay your barber. What we're, what we're sort of talking about is with BIP270, it's like 
handing them a check. It's more like cash, I guess, but a check where that check shows that you definitely have the money right now. And they can send that check to the bank. The bank immediately says, okay, we got this. Rather than that person mails the check to the bank and then the bank shows all of the checks that are coming in and your barber has to look through all those checks to try and figure out where their check is. Maybe that's not the most elegant uh, that's it. It's, analogy, it sounds but... silly when you say it, but that's actually exactly correct. And that's it, it, it is silly the way that Bitcoin wallets are working right now. That they're all doing the, the second one, which is that they like the recipient looks at all the checks that the bank has and has to find whether one of them is is the one that they're actually looking for. So, yeah, and the uh, that's that's okay when there's seven checks per second. Uh, it's not great, but we don't we want a lot more than seven checks per second uh, with Bitcoin, and so it's it's really a uh, it's just a necessary innovation for any kind of anyone right now who's like accepting cash at the store or accepting um i i imagine like a yoga teacher in the park or something with like their like square um card reader like for all these sort of very small stores that aren't going to be running their own node like this kind of protocol is 100% necessary. And so it's good that we have it in the bag. Um, now, I think that what is, to me, what's maybe the most exciting thing that is happening in the sort of right next Charles world, or at least that maybe has the greatest implication uh, for the broader ecosystem is PayMail. Um, I don't know if you, if you agree with that, uh, but, can you tell us, I guess, for people who have never heard that word before, uh, what is PayMail? Okay, so PayMail is just email that also supports Bitcoin. So the idea of PayMail is to take this messaging and naming system that's already ubiquitous throughout the internet and add new features to it, which are the basically the ability to do things like send Bitcoin, as well as to do things like sign and encrypt data. Um, so it, it brings cryptography and the blockchain to email. Mm -hmm. And why, why is that new? Uh, <laughs> we've had Bitcoin for, you know, over 10 years. So, well, I mean, yeah, interesting question. In, in my opinion, having, having worked on this problem of identity, I mean, let me just, let me, let me tell the story about how we created PayNet. So, um, when you get involved in creating Bitcoin wallets and you actually have an interest in making things scalable and user-friendly, and you actually want to make sure that we can do all of the things that have been promised that you can do with, with the blockchain, you, you find that you're, we're going to need some kind of, first and foremost, some kind of standardized naming system that everyone actually uses. Because what you're not going to do is copy and paste your friend's public key or your business partner's public key into an app. If you have to copy and paste a, a public key, you just lost a majority of people on the planet who are never gonna do that and who are not gonna understand what's going on. Um, or you're just gonna lose out to a competitor who does it better. So we need to make this stuff scalable and user-friendly. So we need a naming system because you, before you can do anything, like imagine we wanna participate in a, a contract together of any sort. It could be, um, I just wanna send you money or it could be something like you and I want to do something together. 
where we are uh, you know, doing a multi-sig wallet or we're literally signing a legal contract and we both want to sign it. You need a notion of names and the names need to be something that are human readable and machine readable at the same time. So it needs to be something that we can use as a name with, and remember what it is and tell it to people and communicate it and, and read it without being scared and without making a mistake. But at the same time is readable by a machine and is something where the machine can actually query the information they need about that name. And email fits the bill. Um, email is human readable and machine readable. So it, it has the potential to be like a naming system uh, that we use it at, at sort of a, at, at that level, that it's just the names that we use when we, we actually ever have to type something in or log in or something like this, or see on a screen that you actually see uh, the, the, the email address. The other thing with emails is that they're already very widely used as a identity system. So email, of course, is not originally intended to be used this way, but many, many, many services have you log in with your email address. Your email address is the identifier that you have that is somewhat implicitly already agreed to as the naming system of the internet. Um, phone numbers have, have not really replaced that, or phone numbers are still quite widely used as well. Um, but, but email, I think, is just, if we had to pick one or the other, I mean, email is better because it's a name uh, rather than a number like a phone number. Um, it's also a bit more uh, sort of uh, uh, a bit more uh, sort of let's say free market in the sense that you can just it's much cheaper and easier to get a domain name and spool up your own email than it is to start getting phone numbers uh, for whatever reason. So anyway, uh, PayMail. So the way we created this was first of all there was two different sort of sides of this, which was myself having thought about this for a long time. I figured out something that was about ninety five percent the same as what is PayMail today, and went to the Wallet Workshop in February. And when the, when the time was right, I explained my idea to everyone about how we could have this naming system that's something like email. Um, it's also something like Handcash, was, which was another uh, important part of it, that Handcash had also solved some of the other ideas here, that their system doesn't look like email. But the query system that Handcash was using was, was the basics. So it's like, what we need to do is combine email and, and Handcash, because we take the ideas from Handcash, but it's also because it's email, anybody that has a business or something like this can just use it without having to change their name. And it's something that everyone would be a, a find, find agreeable. So I, I spent 15 minutes or so blurting out this idea. And there was another person there at the wallet workshop whose name is Andy, who listened uh, you know, to what I was saying. And, and then uh, uh, after I explained this to everyone, he said, Ryan, that's a really great idea. Would you like to see an implementation of everything you just said? And we're like, yes. So we go to the room and, and have him show us on the screen that he had already built everything I was talking about. So he had a, a fully working implementation of PayMail. Um, so what we decided to do, so it, 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 by this point, this was maybe an hour or two into this discussion and all this stuff, and sort of become really clear that we were onto something, that this is a very good idea, that we seem to be able to solve all the problems we wanted to solve using this idea. Um, so we ended up deciding to uh, file a patent, actually, that's, that's uh, owned by InChain, uh, but I'm a co-author of the patent. It's Andy and myself that are the, the co-authors of the patent. And it's owned by Enchain, but it's something that anyone in Bitcoin SV can use. The reason why we're doing it, and, and then you can't necessarily use it outside of Bitcoin SV. The reason why we're doing it this way, we, we decided to, to adopt a sort of aggressive stance to the other blockchains in that we don't want them taking our good ideas. So the best way under the circumstances to do that in this case was to let Enchain patent it, basically because it's expensive and difficult, and so long as my company can use it, that made a lot of sense. So that's where PayMail came from. And I wanna mention one other thing about PayMail because 
I think sometimes people criticize PML without understanding the big picture here. Uh, it is an extensible protocol. So just because it has certain properties today doesn't mean it will always have those properties. So we are building in the peer-to-peer -peer transaction stuff into PayMail. So I will pay you. So Jackson, if you have a PayMail, let's say, you know, Jackson at unboundedcapital.com. Suppose that's your PayMail. I'm not saying it is, but you can have whatever one you want. But I would pay, uh, you know, I would pay you. And the peer-to-peer -peer transaction protocol and BIP270 stuff that we're building is actually an extension to PayMail. So I pay to your PayMail, and by extending PayMail, we're going to add support for a peer-to-peer -peer, transaction broadcast endpoint. So that's an example, and I could give tons of others, but we can solve every other identity problem by extending PayMail with a handful of maybe five or 10 of them. We solve basically most of the important identity problems uh, with PayMail. So it really does have the potential to be, uh, I mean, it already is the naming system of the internet, and it does have the potential to continue to be the naming system of Bitcoin as well. And as a final point, the reason why it's so important to use email, we can't have everybody change their name for the millionth time. Everybody that's already using Google or that has a business or is using Microsoft or something like this, there is no way we're going to have every Gmail user change their name uh, again. And there's no way we're gonna have everybody that's already using business uh, email on their business website to change their, their email. They should be able to use those same names that they're already using, but have access to this stuff. This makes it much easier to pitch this idea to businesses like Google and Microsoft and any other business because they can just add this in and start using it and they can use their existing business email as the name. So they'll be able to do things like sign a legal contract using their business email address. So they won't have to change anything. They already have the business email. And so that way Google will have the ability and we're not in touch with Google, although, you know, uh, we had Google in mind specifically because Gmail is so popular. It would be possible for Google to turn on PayMail and make it so that every Gmail account using your existing Gmail is a Bitcoin wallet and gives you access to the ability to send and receive Bitcoin as well as do things like sign a legal contract or whatever else you want to do with your, your Bitcoin wallet and using the same name. So then you could just send Bitcoin to any other Gmail account because all they have to do is add support for it. You could even do things like, for the first time ever, we're going to be able to have things like encrypted email that's actually user-friendly because using the same crypto that we're using for Bitcoin, we can now do encrypted messaging. And we have some of these features actually are already built into MoneyButton. So we have a proof of concept of this already. You, Gmail would be able to um, add support for PayMail. And then anybody that supports PayMail now also has encrypted email. So in, in, instead of, for people that are not familiar, an email as a protocol is quite old. It goes back to the 80s and it is actually not really secure by design. Um, it's not encrypted and whoever's an intermediary there can actually read your email. So what we can do is actually encrypt it at the client uh, using this technology. And so PGP for people who are familiar never really took off because it's incredibly cumbersome to use. This would be like user-friendly encrypted email. So that's just an example. But the point is that um, we did everything very, very deliberately, very much on purpose this way. Uh, and most people already agree, and I'm pretty sure the people that uh, haven't yet gotten on board to PayMail haven't yet fully understood how, how many problems we've solved by creating this. And I think if they fully understood, I think they would realize that it's going to be, I have no idea how you'd ever make something better than this. It strikes me as the right path forward uh, for, for names uh, for, for Bitcoin. Yeah, so... Yeah, so... <laughs> um, 
One, one interesting thing that I think about um, when, I, when I hear you talk specifically is identity on the internet. And I think people have a concept of identity because of one-click logins with Google or Facebook, but you seem to have this more robust vision of online identity with Bitcoin. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, ways that you see that being useful for entrepreneurs and new business models that could leverage a really robust uh, identity enabled through Bitcoin? Well, sure. I mean, so first of all, we already have a lot of the stuff working inside Money Button. So what you can do with Money Button right now is uh, you can sign in to a website using Money Button. So we have an integrated OAuth system and you can, you know, if, if the application builds it, you can sign in. And basically what that means is in the case of Money Button, uh, you have the ability to, uh, first of all, not have a username and a password on every single, uh, you know, sort of website or app that you use. Um, you know, you can just sort of click your way into the app and then have a user account without having to choose a new username and password and then use your PayMail as the name. Um, no one has, none of the apps that we're using have quite implemented the full vision yet. We have a few apps that are using OAuth. Uh, they haven't yet, to my knowledge anyway, last I checked, started using PayMail as the naming system inside. But the idea is, you know, we, we're, we're iterating our way towards this vision where your, your PayMail is your name. And so you should be able to log into a service with your PayMail. And so that way you never have to type in a new username and password ever again. And you authenticate using, uh, you know, for right now it's OAuth, but we can also do this type of thing on chain over time and just improve the user experience of everyone. You can have your name. It can be whatever your existing email is or a new one or whatever, and be able to log into a service by tapping your way in and just agreeing to the terms and conditions or whatever it is that you have to do to get in. Uh, no usernames and passwords. We will get rid of passwords uh, in the full vision that will completely go away. Um, there's more work we have to do to get there. There are a lot of things that we can implement, things like uh, threshold signatures and hardware wallets and things like this will get us to that full vision. Um, but yeah, the idea is to make it so that uh, you, can, you could log into an app and they can track stuff that's appropriate for them to track. So in the case of Money Button right now, you want to be able to track stuff like what have you purchased, uh, what have you paid for, what content have you created, stuff like that, uh, without having to choose yet another new uh, username and password. So, so that's the vision. Yeah. So we're used to signing in through Facebook or Google or something and getting some window that says, we want X, Y, and Z, and probably a lot more things about you. Um, in order to get in, mm -hmm. is that okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think most people click yes, because, you know, what else are you going to do? And also, you don't even have that data for yourself anyway. Um, so my question is, is there going to be that kind of data associated with the pay mail? And what are opportunities for individuals um, to leverage that data in maybe ways that aren't available because that data is owned by third parties. Sure, so let me, I'll, I'll sketch out. Okay, so first of all, with respect to choosing permissions and stuff like this, um, this is the type of thing we will implement over time. I mean, right now, like the, the way our OAuth system currently works is the app specifies the permissions that they need and the user either agrees or disagrees. There are better ways to do this. Like what if you agree with most of it, but there's one thing that you don't agree with? Can you subtract permission? Uh, modern operating systems do this. So like I, my new, what, the new version of uh, Apple OS that I'm using on my computer 
uh, does that, where it does things like, as soon as the app wants to actually do something, it then asks me permission. And so I can actually deny permissions one at a time. That seems like a pretty good model to me, where um, I actually can uh, choose which particular subset of permissions I actually want to grant to an application. So certainly we can do that. I mean, that's just that's an example of, of a good idea that just requires that we build it. Um, uh, so I would say that that's just a matter of fitting that into the rest of our sort of you know, priorities uh, to do something like that. Um, with respect to the private data, I'll say that I've created a lot of presentations and content recently trying to sketch out this vision for how this, I think this will work. Um, I think that once, once you understand that PayMail gives a public key to an email address in a way that's user-friendly, you can start doing, not only can you do uh, Bitcoin transactions, you can do signatures and encryption. And this forms the foundation of like a completely new paradigm for the way that things can work on the internet. You could do things like have a document, like imagine like a Google Docs. So imagine you're writing a document. You're writing, let's say it's actually a legal contract because it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, thought experiment. You're, you actually want to collaborate with your lawyer to write a legal contract. So you open up a web app and you start writing and it, the data is actually being saved to the blockchain, but it's encrypted with your key so that only you can access it. What you then do is you share the document with your lawyer and you type in their PayMail or you choose them from your contact list and share the document with them. What then happens is the document is encrypted with a key that's actually sent encrypted to the lawyer. So the lawyer can now access the document because they have the key uh, to, to decrypt the document. And so you can now co-author this document with your lawyer just like you would with Google Docs, except the key difference is that it's encrypted and only you and your lawyer can see it, even though it's working within a web app. You can now go further with this idea and do things like, okay, that's very interesting. Um, why don't we finish writing the contract? Now we're going to actually have, uh, uh, we're going to send it to whoever the business partner is that we're going to have them like actually sign the document. So now we, we share it with them and they get read access, but not write access to the document. And they can sign the document and they sign it with the cryptographic signature that's actually on chain. And you can encrypt things as needed. So probably the way you would want to do this is th th their signature would actually be inside of another encrypted document that only relevant parties have access to. Perhaps with one extra key in case you want to share it to a judge later on or something like this. So you can actually collaborate to produce a contract inside of an application where only the relevant people ever have access to that document. And even you can take it through completion all the way to signing the document and a fluid user experience. So rather than using 12 different applications or something like this, you can implement a, a fully own your data approach to writing legal contracts where all of the data is encrypted on chain and shared with relevant parties. And let me give you one other example. So that's like a legal contract and you can, you can literally take it through so long as you are cognizant of all the relevant laws and stuff like this. You can do legal signatures that way. Another completely different idea that uses all of the same technology would be an example of doing something like, what if we wanted to write an article together? I could write an article and I intend to publish this article, but I'm going to share it with my editor and I want them to edit the article because they're a professional editor and I'm going to give them 10%. So we agree that they get 10% of the revenue. And so it works the same way. I use a web app 
to write the, the article itself. I share it with the editor. They edit the document. And we have an agreement that they're going to get 10% of the revenue. I can now sell the article on the blockchain. What I do is I sell the access keys to view the article to anyone who pays for it. And the purchase purchases the key. The key would actually have to be held by an Oracle. There would have to be a computer somewhere that actually stores the key to deliver it automatically. But the data itself is on the blockchain. So once the purchaser retrieves the key, they can now buy the article. And their purchase is actually automatically distributed between the author and the editor. So now we have like a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace for content on the blockchain. You can, you can sort of expand this idea further and imagine creating an entire newspaper. The full manifestation of something like citizen journalism would be an application like Facebook and that's a social networking application, but it's actually a social newspaper. So instead of, instead of giving all of your content to Facebook where what they're really doing is uh, just doing data analysis on you to deliver targeted ads to you, you could create a completely different kind of social network where you collaborate with other people to produce content and sell it and automatically pay everyone who was involved according to the contracts that you created uh, in, in launching this content. So imagine instead of logging into Facebook, you log into socialnewspaper.com or something like this. I don't know if that's taken. I'm not trying to advertise who owns that one. But, but imagine that, that you get the idea uh, that you log in. It's this, you log in with your paymail. And so everything's the, the naming system is based on paymail. All of the content itself is going on the blockchain and stuff like this, encrypted with the keys in your Bitcoin wallet and stuff like this. It would look and feel very similar to the way it currently works, except it would feel better because you would have these, uh, th the same data would span applications and stuff like this. You could create holistic experiences where um, the entire process is just extremely user-friendly. You don't ever have to export a file or something like this because the data is just on the blockchain. So you could just edit stuff, save stuff, whatever, and share stuff without having to worry about these details that you worry about with, with uh, these other applications, all while being completely private by default, that everything is like shared only with the people that you actually want to share them with by default, unless you press the publish button and publish it unencrypted on the blockchain. But I'm pretty sure most stuff actually won't even be uh, unencrypted, that you'll actually want to share everything with selected audiences. Um, because if you're creating something of value, why are you just giving it away for free? I mean, the reason to give something away for free is because it's an ad. I mean, that's the reality of what most people are doing. When they write content on Medium and Facebook and stuff like this, they are advertising something. Uh, and that's not to say that it doesn't have value, but it's more like, you know, what are you really doing? That's the reality of most content on the internet. That's why it's free, because we're advertising something else. They want you to go buy something else. We can create a real market for content that is completely de decentralized in the sense that th these are just protocols that, that anyone can build applications for and can use. You can really own your data with encryption by default, and the user friendliness is going to be better. So we can create an own your data paradigm for the internet based on these ideas. Paymail is just a naming system and everything else is basically Bitcoin. Um, and uh, it'll actually be better user experience and you'll own your data and you're going to be able to monetize your content in new ways. And you're not gonna have to see a feed of mostly fake information because most of it's just marketing material, a lot of which is just false. Um, so the overall quality of content will be better. Um, so anyway, so, so I now don't remember what your original question was, but that's the vision for how we merge all these things together and how we create a, uh, uh, a new paradigm with all these technologies. Yeah, it's interesting uh, thinking about, well, one thing that gets talked about a lot in BSV is that um, when, 
you, you allow the market to value information with Bitcoin, where it can't value information currently. And an interesting, something that just pops out to me is like, we were talking about that controlled checklist of things to log in. And obviously there's certain things like location, which um, the application needs to know perhaps for legal reasons, um, but other things that they're just, they just wanna know because that's their business model is they get your information. And so it's uh, when you can imagine sort of like an opt out of specific things, like I'll give you this, but not that. And then what the application might charge in lieu of getting that information, I think people might be kind of surprised at uh, what they actually, like what is that email address actually worth um, to the application to receive? Um, if you could opt out, what would it cost to opt out of providing that data? Uh, and seeing what that marketplace actually looks like uh, for like from a user's perspective, I just am fascinated to see what that looks like um, and how that data is actually being valued. Well, that's a that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, one of the numbers I can remember it's it's been a couple of years since I tried this particular number, but what I remember is that Facebook earns about fifteen dollars per user per year. Um, that doesn't seem like that's very much money to me. That seems like on average, they're valuing your information almost certainly under what you would value it if you were able to properly value this information. So imagine that you log into two social networks and what you do is, and a lot of this is just a user experience problem that we have to create the correct user experience. The way this should work is you shouldn't share any of this information by default. It should just automatically be denied that no, I'm not going to share my contact list with but what it doesn't say is you have a default threshold that says, ah, oh, but if they offer you at least $100, you'll at least print on the screen that someone is actually willing to buy your contact list for $100. So what if it works that way instead? That your device or software automatically denies these terrible requests, like your entire contact list. Like just to give an example of this, I mean, I don't want to share my entire contact list with anyone. I've signed up on more than one of these social networks where for whatever reason, I sign up to it more than once or whatever, and I accidentally forget to uncheck that box. And now I've uploaded my entire contact list to this third-party service and I get nothing for it. And it was just an accident because they tried to nudge me into doing it. Um, I, that should just be prohibited. And instead, but I would totally entertain the possibility that they'd be willing to buy my contact list from me. And now some people would be willing to sell their contact list for more or for less money, but that seems to me how it should work. And part of the idea of owning your data is that you could also sell or license your data any way that you want to, because it's yours. So if you want to sell it, you can. Um, and that means you don't own it anymore, though. So if you, depending on how you sell or license it, if you're properly selling something, you don't own it. But you could have that choice. So you could still have the ability to upload your contact list to a, to a service like this. But anyway, that's how I think it should work is more like uh, you should get an offer. Uh, do you wish to sell your contact list to this service for X amount of money? And if you agree, you can say yes to something like that. I like the phrase own your data paradigm because it really is like a fundamental paradigm shift. And thinking as like a large corporation, a paradigm shift doesn't necessarily sound you know, enticing to me because I'm, I'm benefiting off the current paradigm. So what I'm curious about is in your conversations with entrepreneurs or existing companies, are they receptive to this? Are they excited about the possibilities or is it threatening? 
That's a good, that's a good question. Okay. So first of all, anytime you pitch this, I mean, you, you can't pitch an ideology to someone. It's just not going to work. I mean, you need to pitch a, a solution to their problem. I mean, maybe something that's actually compelled to pay for something. So in my discussion so far, so what I, what I haven't done is actually try to deliberately pitch Silicon Valley companies. I think we're still too early for that. Um, there are a few things that I want to solve. Like basically, I think I'd be wasting my time if I went and tried to knock on Google's door and pitch them on what we're doing right now. I think it's, I think it's slightly premature, although I don't think we're that much premature. I think with a bit more effort, we'll be able to pitch Google. What I've done so far is to talk with much smaller uh, companies and, and stuff like that. So the people I, that I've encountered are already agreeable to these ideas. So uh, often they come to us because they hear about us somehow. And so they're interested in these types of ideas. Um, so I can't really give any advice on pitching this to Google, although I would say, you know, I made a, I made a, a video recently where I, I described, you know, why I made two of them actually, about why I think Facebook should use Bitcoin SB. And what I pitched in that video, although this video was not something I, I don't know anyone, unfortunately, that works at Facebook, so I can't uh, deliver this to them directly. But if we're lucky, somebody at Facebook will watch it. What I said was I tried to sketch out this idea that when you understand what I'm saying, that right now we live in an ad-funded paradigm where all of the content on the internet, basically all of it, is funded by ads. And when you realize that the quality of the content is pretty low because of that, and we're selecting really low-quality content, and the content that is very high quality is kind of being missed or is not even being produced. The market size for high quality content is probably going to be a lot bigger than this ad funded content that we're seeing right now. When you can actually consume content every day that improves your life in some way, especially if it proves it economically, where you can say, read a book that literally delivers a return to you uh, the next day, well, you're willing to pay money for stuff like this. So I like to give like an example where it's like, you know, imagine either reading a book or consuming something or even getting your education where you reflect on things that actually delivered value for you, content that you consumed that actually helped you either in your personal life or in your professional life. Um, people pay for this stuff all the time and they are willing to pay for it if it actually does deliver on that promise. So in, the, in, the, uh, in this sort of uh, own your data paradigm, uh, the way you monetize something is by creating content that other people are actually willing to pay for. That is almost by definition higher quality than the ad funded stuff because it's not just an ad. Um, it's actually something that somebody purchases. Um, so I think qualitatively that market is going to have to be way, way, way bigger than the ad funded market. So I think if, if Facebook, who is the most properly positioned company in the world to do something like this, actually adopted these ideas and they built the applications I was just mentioning, um, they just charge 5% or something like this for this stuff. And now they're earning money from a completely new market that I think will be far larger than, than the ad funded market. It'll be, especially when I think people finally see this. Now, that's quite speculative though. And I don't know for sure that anyone within Facebook understands these ideas. Although I strongly suspect they're kind of on the right path because that's why they're doing all this stuff with Libra. So I think they kind of get it, although Libra also tells me that they don't fully get it either. So I don't know. I can't give any more concrete advice on pitching large companies, but certainly there are lots of small companies out there that fully understand all this stuff and are working on ideas like this, and you can work with those companies pretty easily. Yeah, and I think there's more winners to, to this than just the user. And we, we obviously just talked about how being able to fund better content can help these platforms, but also... Uh, in terms of 
developing a true marketplace for information, including like your private personal data. Uh, having that marketplace and the ability to just pay someone a very small amount for information that you need or want um, is a valuable tool that's not necessarily available. So maybe rather than like create some really shitty clickbait game to try and get a certain piece of data, if you can just go out outright and buy it from people who are willing to sell it to you for a quarter, it might be a more cost-effective way of getting that data. Uh, some sort of a win-win and the fact that that marketplace can't exist and that there's no way to send you know a million people a quarter eff effectively is or it's just to say that it's not just the user necessarily who benefits from this now obviously certain people are arbitraging that lack of a marketplace um, and are getting a bigger piece of the pie than maybe their role in the exchange uh, will be able to justify when technology improves but it's not just users win, businesses lose. Uh, it's certainly not that simple. And so I think getting people on board is gonna be relatively s simple and also unavoidable because it's not like they can sweep the sum of a rug. Yeah, I mean, it depends on who you're pitching. Uh, when, I, when I try to explain this to companies, I mean, you know, the, the, you know, there are entirely new business opportunities here. So it's either going to be existing businesses adopt these ideas or it's going to be startup companies. But I, I regard it as a massive business opportunity. So certainly this is not about businesses losing. The only reason why anybody would think that is because, well, the current business models are what will lose. Like, like one of my predictions is that the, the ad funded paradigm dominated by Facebook and Google is not something that will be the dominant uh, paradigm in say, I don't know, 10 years. I mean, that's kind of a rough estimate, but, um, that idea will lose. That doesn't mean that Facebook and Google lose because if they're on top of this, they could easily win. They could easily outcompete every little startup company and they'd be irrelevant. But things will change. And, I, and so that's, that's how I see it. it it's not, but you could say the same thing about any other technology. I mean, you could say something like, uh, you know, I, I don't know, what's an example, like typewriters or something like this. Like, um, you know, I mean, if you're a typewriter company and the personal computer comes along, what, what are you going to do? Are you going to double down on typewriters? Or are you going to pivot your business and start building personal computers? You could easily, I mean, not easily, but you can pivot your business and survive. But if you double down on typewriters, I mean, that's just not going to be the future. So, I mean, there's no way your company is going to continue to grow doubling down on, on something that's just obsolete. So, you know, we can also sort of get subsidies to help the uh, typewriters, you know, continue on. Uh, just make sure there's not, you know, everyone still has a job. If you want to. <laughs> Um, well, Ryan, we're coming up on, uh, the point where maybe we're intruding on your productive time. Uh, and also I think this is a fascinating conversation, but maybe one that, uh, is better continued after our break to, for everyone to sort of collect themselves, stew a little bit on what's been said, think about how this may or may not impact them. Uh, and then we can go to the drawing board and come back and keep hashing this out. Anyway, that's my sort of elegant way of kicking you off of our show. And <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, Ryan, is there, where can we, uh, I know Twitter is not a place where people can get in touch with you, but if they want to follow you or see like things that you have to say or follow what's happening with uh, your business, where might they go? Well, we do have, even though as, as much as I don't like Twitter, of course we are on Twitter. So you can follow the uh, money button uh, Twitter account. 
uh, where we put uh, all of the news. That's actually mirrored from Twitch, though. We do prefer Twitch. So all of the content is actually on Twitch first. So if you use Twitch, you can follow us on Twitch too. Find the, the money button, use your account there. Um, of course, we have a website, it's moneybutton.com. And if you want to learn more about what we're doing, we have a blog, it's blog.moneybutton.com. And all of our documentation is at docs, docs.moneybutton.com. And one final thing is our YouTube channel. So it's uh, youtube.com slash, I think it's just money button. Um, and we have a number of videos and we're going to keep producing uh, more content because uh, we get a lot of positive feedback about this. So we have a bunch of really sort of, I guess you could say a sort of a unique perspective on things. And so uh, we're gonna keep uh, producing content that uh, uh, we're, we're learning by creating this stuff and then also teaching people what we knew and know about this stuff. So YouTube is a good place to Yeah, I think I speak for both Dave and myself in saying that that content uh, that you've produced and that Money Button has produced uh, has been extremely helpful for us in terms of you know, our constant uh, effort to understand what is happening uh, in the world of Bitcoin. And so I really, really appreciate you doing that and continuing to do that. Thank you very much. All right, you heard it here. Uh, Ryan X. Charles is going to take down uh, Facebook and Twitter and all those other companies. And we'll see you guys again uh, at our next episode. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, guys.